32 counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. My name is Andrea. And this is... United Ireland. Yes! <laughs> we usually take a county, dive into an issue relevant to that county, and then see where in the world it brings us. I'm really going for this soft voice. I've gotten a lot of comments on it. I'm into it. I'm into it too. But these days, we're talking about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on our lives in a different kind of way. In this episode, we're going to be looking at whether the coronavirus will change the fashion industry forever. We have some great guests who are really going to get under the hood of this issue. They're going to be giving us an insight into the industry's notoriously demanding schedules uh, now being very much up in the air and whether creativity and not consumerism may in fact win out. Imagine the world where creativity went out. Oh, what a joy. Um, but first, before we go into all that, we will talk about our glorious Patreon and what is now included in our new weekly special of the Sunday Soothe. Thank you. I hate when podcasters say that. Thank you, everyone, for your great feedback. But like, I mean it. Um, loads of people are saying that they love the little boost of soothing for yourself of a Sunday or any day in fact so that is great to hear we also can you believe it it just took a pandemic we also are in the midst of rewards they should be landing in your doorway today or if not in the next few days so can you believe we got our shit together it's a glorious day and so if we've gotten our shit together you can get your shit together and that means signing up to support us on Patreon. There are many tiers. You can go for a three dollar, five dollar, nine ninety nine, uh, twenty five, fourteen ninety nine, or twenty five. So there's a lot of options for anyone who wants to flash the cash or uh, be supportive in a very small way, which is equally as important. So if you have not done it yet, now is that moment. Go to patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. How are you feeling, Andrea? I just tried to think about it and I don't actually know how I'm feeling. I think that's the theme of my week this week. It's like, am I good? Oh God, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel. I think, this, I think the weekend just gone was when um, a lot of people I talked to have kind of started, not to break is a bit uh, dramatic, but really kind of started to feel maybe a little bit more of the mental health impact of the pandemic. You know, the shock is wearing off, normality is setting in. Um, so I think that it's important for everybody to try and keep their spirits up um, and to try and not let the Groundhog Day aspect get in on yourself. Maybe try and do a different new thing every day, even if it's just call somebody you haven't spoken to in a while um, or watch a new show or bake a new kind of bread <laughs> as I've been doing on my sourdough tip now, like the giant cliche that I am. I have to say something. What? I feel like it's the wrong thing to say, but I'm going to do it. Okay, go on. I don't actually like sourdough. Oh yeah. Well, that's fine. But that's okay. Never, but I kind of did before and now I've been, I'm just like, no, I still like it. I think once it's gone super, super mainstream, you're just dropping it like the hype beast that you are. Bread, uh, early adopter, uh, early dismisser that you are. <laughs> Is that accurate? No, it's absolutely not. That's so depressing. I still love murder shirt. Okay, fine. Now, the state of the nation.
what's going on in the nation. Well, um, if uh, we're recording this on a Wednesday and uh, if you'd been reading the Irish Times on this day, uh, you would have seen their um, front page story, really, this, this kind of phased plan uh, to exit coronavirus. Now, uh, basically, they've uh, kind of been looking at this um, plan, which is at, in its early stages being discussed by uh, the National Public Health and Emergency Team. And I suppose a lot of this is kind of not hypothetical, but it, it's a dependent on everything kind of going well. But at the very least, it may provide us with the structure uh, with which we, we kind of know how things are going. Because I do think that that kind of gets in on people, like not really knowing if there's a roadmap and what the details are of it do leave like it does leave you in this kind of limbo situation so uh in the times they broke kind of looked at this plan or the early stages of it and and it's broken down into phases uh, the initial phase which is early phase stage one um and then kind of seeing whether uh, various restrictions may be lifted although uh it doesn't seem that a lot of stuff will be lifted on May 5th so um you can read about that plan on, on the Irish Times website um and one of the things i suppose that's that's feeding into the slow uh trajectory of restrictions being lifted in Ireland um, has been uh, the country's inability to meet its testing targets. So while, um, you know, the extension of a lockdown isn't like a punishment on people doing crazy things and going for walks two and a half kilometres outside of their limit, it's more to do with the... Not the reason... uh, for this. Yeah. Um, it's more to do with the fact that in order to start lifting uh, lockdown restrictions, there needs to be um, a much clearer picture about where we're at. And in order to understand where we're at in terms of infection rates, in terms of what our, the curve is and all that, you do need to have Ma- like a massive amount of testing done, um, which the intention was 100,000 a week. Uh, I think it's the capacity at the moment is 60,000 a week, but I'm not sure if that amount is actually being done. That's the capacity. Um, and then, you know, looking at all the contact tracing, seeing the rate of infection, knowing that it's dropping, all that kind of stuff. So I think until we get that you know, right, uh, we're not really going to be seeing many restrictions lifted. However, in this draft plan, you know, the early part of this first phase would allow over 70s uh, who are cocooning uh, to go out and walk um, for, you know, a small period during the day. Uh, obviously, with all of the caveats involved, you know, don't touch anything, physical distancing, la la la. Um, and then uh, allow a maximum of four people who aren't from the same household to gather outside. Uh, also, while obeying social distancing, um, maybe increasing the distance people can travel from outside their home for exercise. So obviously it's 2K now, maybe they'll raise that to 5K and that kind of stuff. So there does seem to be the bones of a plan emerging and obviously it's all dependent on uh, everything going to plan. And uh, of course, um, lots of people, I'm sure you, you're you know all kind of looking at what's going on in, in different countries and every country is, is doing things uh, I suppose, specific to their own, uh, you know, experiences and uh, specifications. Uh, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. But again, managing our own hopes and uh, about this May 5th thing, uh, there aren't going to be a, a dramatic lift of, of restrictions. So just get that into your head and don't be disappointed. <laughs> that sounds a bit mean. Right. Um, balance of have hope that it might happen, but probably no, it won't. Yes. Practical hope. 
uh, not fun. Um, in other State of the Nation news, uh, the Gardaí, uh, as of early this week, have made 76 arrests for breaches of lockdown regulations. One of the things that I was looking at in terms of these arrests is that they're using spit hoods uh, when they arrest some people uh, who, you know, I guess if you're totally out of control and you're like spitting and uh, at, at Gardaí and coughing in their faces and stuff. Um, and it sounds very uh, draconian to me, They're putting hoods on people. violence, but I think there is absolute violence being used in terms of the people who are being arrested spitting on people. Like, I think there's obviously yeah. balance, but I think... Something that's interesting um, on the side of that is uh, the ICCL, who we spoke to before, um, are asking for a, a support for their call for a human rights impact assessment before the 5th of May. So if you can pop onto their website, um, there is an opportunity to read the letter that they sent to the Taoiseach and to add your voice to their call and to email your TD as well. Great, uh, great idea there for people to look into. I guess for me with the spit hoods thing, I mean, it all sounds very Guantanamo. And, and I suppose when these very, very extreme things uh, happen with regards to how you're meant to restrain somebody, uh, you'd hope that they'd only be used in really, really exceptional cases and not as a policy uh, going across. Because we know that extreme tools in times of crisis can sometimes become normalized. Um, so, yeah, hoods uh, upon arrest. I feel very uncomfortable about that. What else is going on with the state of the nation, Andrea? Um, unfortunately, Pride, which was meant to go ahead in June, was pushed out to September. So it and the Mother Block Party have now been uh, cancelled in September. Um, but Pride is going ahead. And instead of it being the normal uh, parade, it's Pride, except they're bringing it home in June. So it'll be um, a different way of celebrating Pride. So not completely gone, but just different. Yeah, I think this speaks to, um, you know, having realistic expectations as well about what will be allowed or be permitted to happen um, for the rest of this year. You know, a lot of things were postponed and pushed into the autumn or, or gigs pushed into the winter. Um, realistically, uh, as we await a vaccine and hope for a vaccine, um, I I mean, personally, I, I just don't see how uh, mass gatherings will be practical uh, w without that. So, um, you know, we were speaking about the live music industry in last week's podcast, uh, and that goes across, you know, when you take, you know, remove live music from it, you know, you're thinking about clubs, you're thinking about theatre, festivals, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it does seem to be all of those things going on the long finger for now. There was, I optimistically bought a ticket to a gig in December. And like, if it, go, if it goes ahead, I'll be optimistically happy, but I'm not expecting it. But there was also a video, give us a night, did a video of how you could possibly socially distancely go to a club and rave. Um, it's obviously a bit of a piss take, but it could be the new reality. Everyone was wearing masks. The bouncer took your ID with a stick thing. It's not the ideal. But however, we, we live in hope and we know that it probably won't happen. Um, and then finally, in the uh, State of the Nation, something that I thought was really frustrating and upsetting was that a court overturned a Dublin man's conviction for rape of his heavily pregnant partner. Um, and reading through the um, 
through the articles about it, there was a lot of proof of that it happened and it was overturned due to misdirection on what was capable of amounting to corroboration and would allow the appeal on this sole ground. So it was uh, the wording that the trial judge used when instructing the jury um, and how they found the guilty um, verdict. So I'd say it's, it's a very upsetting story and it does it does make you think of how, why would you fucking bother? Um, which is obviously um, a horrible thing to think because the law should be protecting us. But if you are affected by this, please do call Women's Aid or the Dublin Make Crisis Centre. And as well as that, there's a there's a campaign called Still Here, uh, reminding people uh, who um, may be in danger or experiencing violence at home that resources are there and uh, stillhere.ie has mapped resources around Ireland. And obviously, if you are in immediate danger, call 999 or 112. Now it's time for our weekly Corona Correction. This week's Corona Correction comes from Lithuania with the news that the Lithuanian capital um, Vilnius has announced plans to turn the city into a vast open air cafe. This is an attempt to um, help uh, restaurant owners and cafe owners uh, to open back up um while still observing the physical distancing rules. So using public space to uh, put seating outside um, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's an, interest, it's an interesting thing um, to, to consider uh, whether, uh, because obviously so many restaurant owners and, and bar owners and cafe owners are like, you know, you can talk about physical distancing all you want, but the practicalities of doing it uh, are very, very difficult. And the practicalities of surviving at a much reduced capacity are even more difficult. Um, so this is an interesting thing to observe uh, if public spaces are uh, being utilised uh, in this way for people to be social. Also questions about um, commercial enterprises taking over public spaces as well. Um, but it's an interesting vibe. Not sure it would really translate to Ireland given that it rains all the time. And now for our topic this week, which is Corona versus fashion. So this week, the fashion brand Saint Laurent announced that it would not be presenting collections at any rescheduled or hypothetical or digital fashion weeks. The company released a very interesting statement to make the announcement, saying, Conscious of the current circumstance and its wave of radical change, Saint Laurent has decided to take control of its pace and reshape its schedule. Now more than ever, the brand will lead its own rhythm, legitimate legitimating the value of time and connecting with people globally by getting closer to them in their own space and lives. With this strategy firmly in place, Saint Laurent will not present its collections in any of the pre-set schedules of 2020. Saint Laurent will take ownership of its calendar and launch its collections following a plan conceived with an up-to-date perspective driven by creativity. In an industry known for its punishing pace, will the pandemic alter fashion beyond just schedules and production lines? (music) 
So uh, Sarah Shine is a London-based writer and editor focusing on the global fashion industry. She was Vogue's first editor dedicated to growing young audiences, putting her PhD in literature and visual cultures to very good use. She was up until recently the growth editor at the Business of Fashion, which is the most important industry-focused media outlet in fashion. Um, and has worked for the BBC News in London, Wall Street Journal in Hong Kong. And her article on how fashion designers are keeping creative in lockdown was recently published by the Financial Times. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Ina. Um, so one of the the reasons that we're kind of doing this podcast was actually, I think I think I saw you tweeted first that that statement from Saint Laurent. Um, but w- before we get into that, uh, what was the immediate impact of the pandemic on the fashion industry from where you're observing things like what key dates were coming up that were inevitably going to be completely disrupted? Sure. So um, I think the pandemic really started to hit during the last fashion month cycle, which is February to to the uh, very start of March. Um, But really before that, the industry was just disrupted at source level. So um, in December, January, and then February, factories in China were closed. And then obviously, fabric mills and factories in the north of Italy, where most of the European manufacturing for leather goods and for garments is, is done, were starting to close down as well. So in terms of the design process, that meant that there weren't fabrics or prototypes available to, to keep the design process going. So um, the first shows that started to be cancelled were men's and couture shows which would have been in june and july they were cancelled and then pre-spring collections which were being created during that period of time ready for presentation at the beginning of may they were very disrupted as well um you like what what was the vibe because it was at milan fashion week that was actually quite close to um the the before the kind of main impact uh of the pandemic in northern Italy? Yeah, so Armani um, actually did a virtual show or a digital show. There was no um, no people present in the, in the room. And then by the time the fashion crowd moved to Paris, there were big concerns that some of the major shows that happened towards the end of that week would be cancelled. None of them were, but there was a significant decrease in the uh, number of buyers that were showing up to shows a number of uh, journalists returned home, decided not to stay for the full week. So the impact was already b- being felt in Paris uh, at the end of end of Feb, beginning of March. Mm. There has been lots of talk about digital collections and all that kind of stuff. What does that actually mean? And are people getting on board with moving fashion weeks or collections, etc. online? Um, I feel like a lot of that talk is mainly from people who don't work on the creative side of the industry. Um, Mark Jacobs was uh, on a Vogue web seminar on the future of fashion shows, I think, last week. And he pointed out really succinctly that the real problem isn't the staging of fashion shows, but it's actually getting fabrics and making the garments, whether that's digitally or viscerally in real life. And right now that's just not possible because those factories and, and the fabric mills are closed. In terms of digital design, Tommy Hilfiger are one brand that are looking to go 100% digital by 2022. But that only really works if the products are simple, i.e. you have a shirt where the shape doesn't change much from season to season. In terms of digital design, I think it's really impossible to, to work out what kind of impact that would have on the garments that are made. I think the difficulty is, is that fashion is both a 
creative artistic medium and also a manufacturing industry. You have to remember that the way that gravity holds a piece of fabric, the way it fits around a a body, that fitting process in real life is so important. And that's from my, from my standpoint, I think that's where the magic of fashion happens. So I think people are getting on board with the idea that maybe the fashion cycle needs to change. The sort of relentless creation of newness needs to change But I think the process of digital design still has a long way to go. And there's still many questions about how realistic that really is. Hmm. On that relentless pace and the cycle, how could the calendar essentially pan out um, if it was to maybe change it a little bit? Or what is the driver of it really? Is it the commercial viability of fashion? Well, if we go back sort of 15, 20 years ago, there were only two collections that a house would show. That was February and September, autumn, winter, and spring, summer. They went into shops twice a year. So customers would come in and they were buying for essentially the next six months. And then, you know, hopefully using those or keeping those, those items for future years. With time, resort collections were grown into proper collections and then they were shown or presented. So now we're sort of up to four or more collections being created and then shown per year. Then fast fashion comes in. They're dropping new items into shops every week and high-end fashion had to adapt because customers through Instagram, through online shopping, expected newness constantly. So I think the driver of that relentless pace is us, is the consumer. I think that's not helped by things like online shopping. You know, going to a shop was a thing. You know, you got to touch the clothes, you got to feel them, you got to try them on, see how how you felt in them. But now you can get anything in a matter of clicks. So I think it's that relentless desire to have things that has really caused the industry to to gear itself up to a pace that wasn't really sustainable. And I think what's really interesting is is hearing this be an opportunity for brands and for designers to come out and say like this we can't do this anymore um whether or not that will change though i think you know still to tell there's like there's been so many conversations about designers and films about it and how the emotional toil is taken by the pure size of the work and pressure that's being put on them and obviously that's being driven by houses that are owned by business folk rather than creative designers so do you think that like that that's changed and somewhat or is it still the designer and um, business divide um difficult question i think it really depends on the brand i think from a from a personal standpoint living with a fashion designer i know that the work is never done you know it's like watching a a painter you know you're never satisfied with the product that you've created or the the piece of art that you've created and there's always room to do more i think from a business standpoint you need product to sell what i found really interesting with sanaron's statement is that they're saying they're pre- promoting creativity by setting their own schedule and so that gives me hope that we might actually go back to the idea of really coveting something that's well-designed and and putting the craft of fashion back at the forefront. So I think that limits the amount of time that's 
that's there to be taken. But when you slot the design process into the prototyping, the manufacturing, the production cycle, and then the sales cycle, inevitably it's the design process that gets squeezed right at the front of the chain. So very often you have maybe one or two days to do research and then come up with a concept for a collection and then get that collection sort of started. So it really is a short amount of time to be able to do what what you really want to do, which is think and, and be creative. And then the rest of the, the process kind of naturally falls behind, but is always overbearing on that creative moment. And do you think that this pandemic might switch it around? Because there's such a difficulty of being an independent designer. And for any sort of success, you do need to have a house behind you and the money of that house behind you. So do you think there might be perhaps a rise in independent designers because of this pandemic? Or do you think that it will still be driven by all the main houses? I hope so. I think what's really interesting is the fact that sustainability has been such a huge conversation in the past sort of year or two, maybe more in the fashion industry. And now you have a moment where everyone has had to stop. And I think those two conversations are going to have to sort of be continued in tandem now. I think when we're looking at creating less and thinking more about creativity, I think that really does open space for younger designers, for designers that are really focused on having a a very defined vision and a smaller offering that is really covetable. I think it offers space for them to exist. I think as well on a personal level, this time has allowed time for rest. All of the the designers that I've spoken to are really grateful for this sort of moment off the hamster wheel. But I think bigger picture is that a huge amount of money is being lost and it's really, really expensive to have a brand and to launch a brand and to do everything that's necessary to to sort of generate customer acquisition acquisition and, and sales. So, I hope that there is space, but I think the big conglomerates, the LVMHs and the the caring groups are always going to to dominate. What I hope is that they don't stop supporting smaller designers through their, um, you know, prize at the LVMH prize, for example, was was shared this year between all of the finalists. Um, Instead of one person getting 20,000 euros, that was split between the finalists. Now, is that that split of, of cash enough to sustain those designers across the next year. Let's see. What kind of chatter are you hearing, you know, kind of across the industry, even from kind of other fellow, you know, analysts or, or journalists or whatever? Like we we know the kind of the creativity piece and, the, and, the, and this sense of pace slowing down kind of goes across so many aspects of our society. But are there particular, um, you know, issues being th- being thrown up um, even when it comes to maybe even how how do you cover things if they're if they're not happening, is this an existential moment for those kind of conversations? You know, or are people just kind of still scrambling the way maybe the music industry is with like postponing and rescheduling gigs or whatever? When I first started asking around, um, when lockdown first happened in London and then and then quickly afterwards in New York, there was still the the idea that things would go back to normal so we'd still have a fashion month in september collections would still be designed but i think what we're realizing more and more is is those collections can't be designed or or put into practice because there's now a backlog 
so far behind. I think what the general sense now is that there will be layoffs, companies are going to fold, the landscape of purchasing will change, and that's going to affect the industry, not just in terms of the designers, the merchandisers, the, the shops, the the multi-brand stores, um, department stores, etc., and so on, but also the way that the industry is covered. So, you know, we've seen layoffs at a different uh, fashion journalists or uh, media companies, and I think that will continue to happen. I think the narrative needs to change. I think we need to start looking a bit more at fashion holistically, so not just you know kind of separating the creative and the the industry side of it, but looking at it as as one sort of whole concept and really interrogating the industry from from both sides. And I think less negativity in looking at at what designers are trying to do. I think it's very easy to to kind of point fingers and, you know, question furloughs and, and, and things like that that have happened. But I think the 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 end game is that they're all businesses and um and sometimes that can be lost as well in the narrative. Before you go, Sarah, and this has all been really fascinating. Thanks so much for, for taking the time out. But just um we started off talking about or um the, I suppose, the production chain uh, breakdown between China and Northern Italy. Has that come back? Um, or, or And also there was so much chatter about um, the impact of connections between, you know, China and Northern Italy's textile garment industry, uh, you know, kind of ca- contributing to the beginning of the pandemic in Europe. And obviously, like people are flying all over the place. Nobody is, is effectively to blame. But has that connection come back like have have the textile factories started again in in china and in northern china China. um i've spoken to a number of designers who produce either in china in india in india in portugal and italy and i think the designers that have split their production across different countries are, are obviously going to fare a bit better because they're able to to start one part of their process before another side opens up. It mm. looks like the factories in northern Italy will open within the next, I think, week or so. But in terms of the fabric mills, which is where the real issue is, um, because obviously you can't start designing if you don't know what fabrics are going to be working for, it's really expensive and, and quite time-consuming to get those, um, those machines back up and running. And so they're not going to do that if then the lockdown comes back in, you know, a week or two later. So I think there's still a bit of time to to go before we see everything opening up. In terms of the connection between China and northern Italy, you know, a lot of the Italian fabric mills have subsidies in China and and people always travel. I think what's really interesting is just before the the coronavirus uh, really kicked in in northern Italy, where, you know, as I said at the start, lots of textile production, shoe manufacturing and, and leather goods or bags um, are created. There was a fabric fair and there was also a leather fair. And that meant a huge amount of people are on the move, not just from China, but from all over Europe and beyond. Now, we don't want to make that connection with without acknowledging that, that it's speculation, but I think you know the timeline does over, overlap. And I think it's really clear that more broadly, um, the fact that the world has become so small and people travel so much means that things happen before we're aware of them and it's taking um, 
it's taken what it, it takes wider societal structures to catch up. And I think that is one thing that will be impacted by the, by the coronavirus. I think we won't see the ability to move and travel be as easy as it was before. And I think that's the greatest loss that we will have as a result of this process. Mm. And finally, how are things in London? How are you guys coping over there? Uh, I would love to tell you, but I'm not leaving my house, so I don't really know. Um, it's 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 been okay. Uh, we had some really good weather last weekend, which was actually quite disappointing because it meant that a lot more people were going outside. But we've got full-on rain for the next week, which I'm really happy about because it, it might mean that the lockdown is uh, is adhered to a bit more stringently. Um, it, it is what it is. I think, you know, as long as we all stay at home and, and follow the guidelines, we'll, we'll be all right in the end. To end on a final fashion note, what did you make of the Jacquemus, uh first campaign shot over FaceTime this week? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean... You know, it's it's great to think that people can still be creative using technology like FaceTime and, and Zoom and things like that. But I think I really hope that that doesn't mean that young photographers and people who really have craft and the ability to create something beautiful um, get lost because it's easier and cheaper to, to make something in a different way. Thanks so much, Sarah. Um, that's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, wishing you All the best. Stay safe in London and uh, let's check back in soon. Thanks so much. See you later. So Sarah spoke in our previous interview about the difficulties in not just putting shows on during Corona times, but also the difficulty in actually getting the clothes made. How on earth can you choose fabrics through a Zoom call? To talk us through how the industry is adapting and continuing to move, we were joined by Gemma Casti, who is the Chief Product Officer of L. Catterton, which is an LVMH private equity firm, whose remit is currently with Sweaty Betty. Um, and essentially, the role oversees the buying, planning, design, fabric, print, colour, garment, tech teams. So a few little things under her belt. Uh, her previous roles have included Chief Product Officer at Diane von Furstenberg, um, Senior Vice President of Merchandising with DKMY and Donna Karen, Buying Director for Free People in the Urban Outfitters Group, and then closer to home, she worked in Dunn's, Bestseller and Topshop. So she knows her retail. Um, she's also my oldest friend. Terrifyingly, we've been friends since we were 12, which I will tell you is not today or yesterday. Welcome, Gemma. Hi. Well, first of all, don't think I didn't notice my downgrade from best friend to oldest friend. (laughs) (laughs) We will talk about this. (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that in the in the director's cut of this podcast episode. But Gemma, can you explain what your job actually is? Um, And as an aside, can you explain what the difference in the term merchandising is on different sides of the Atlantic? Yeah, God, this is the 50 million dollar question. So I think the vast majority of my friends and family still think I dress mannequins for a living, but also I'll do my best to explain. So merchandising in has a few different end uses. So if you have obviously visual merchandising, which I think most of us will know is store, a bit of a store design, um, mannequin styling, windows, floor layouts, etc. So that's one, which I don't do. Um, and then there's also in the UK, merchandising is very much so planning. It's financial planning. Um 
kind of forecasting for the year, looking at stock holding, allocations, replan, um, looking at shipments from factories, etc. And then merchandising in a probably a bigger global sense, um, not so much high street, but definitely in the designer cadence calendar and in bigger global companies like, say, Lululemon or Adidas, etc., merchandising is a function that we don't really have in Ireland actually at all that I know of. And what it is, is it's almost where you're not a designer, so you're not obviously designing, uh, but you're also not just a buyer as in I don't mean just, but you're not buying for the stores. What you're doing is you're kind of almost the commercial voice for sales, for customers, for retail stores, for the sales team and the wholesale markets. And what you do is you take designs range that they rate and then you commercialize it. So you set the tone at the start of the season with regards to how many styles you need, how many price points, what those price points are, um, what price fabrications you need, um, the silhouette uh, variations, et cetera, et cetera. And not to bore you, but that's the start point. You'll go through different iterations like sketch review and fit review, and then you get the actual styles in, confirmed, produced, and then your job is done. And then buying, come in and buy for stores if that makes sense. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) What has been the impact uh, of the pandemic on the business as you see it and and that kind of more global side of the business that you're involved in? I think, honestly, it's it's just vast. And especially, it's bizarrely vast for such a short period of time. Like, I would say this amount of change and pivot that we've done over the last more or less six weeks really is something that a business would usually do over five years. So that's to put in perspective the change that takes. And usually, you know, if you're saying you're next year, you're looking at a down forecast at 10%, you have the next year to get ready for that. You might scale back some staff, you might do a pay freeze, you might reduce some of your stock, you might open those new stores that you planned on doing, or there's, there's various things you will do for cost savings. We have to kind of do that now in a day when that happened. Overnight, we locked down stores. Um, They were all gone. So straight away, 70% of our business disappeared overnight. So it's really hard. There's no real one answer to say what it changes. I think we're still learning. You know, from my role, the first, my company, should I say, the first uh, week, you know, it was definitely pretty bad. I mean, as I said, we closed 70 stores. Overnight, our stores were gone. And that was in the the US and the UK. Um, and at that time, e-com was about 30% of our business. Wholesale was still quite small, so we didn't really rely on that. Um, but what we had to do is go out to all our suppliers and say, listen, you're going to have to work with us. We can't take this in because we now don't have any cash flow coming in. We had to pay our rents, our electricity, our rates, all our staff. And the biggest, the two biggest financials in a business are your staff and your stock, as in, in our business, is staff and stock. So we can't not pay staff. We can't just suddenly decide not to pay anyone. And we can't take the stock in because we have to pay the suppliers for it. So the first week, that's what we did. We called every single supplier and mill we worked with and begged for them to hold that stock until we could just have a few weeks to recalibrate, see what we could do. We jumped on, started looking about who do we want to make redundant? What does that look like? How do we protect these people who have done nothing to deserve these redundancies? And that, yeah, so that was the first week, which again, that's, that's a conversation that would happen over a year. Um, mm. So they're the really biggest changes, I would say, that have impacted my day to day, so to speak. And how has how you 
Um, I, I'm fascinated from all your Zoom calls that you have to do in terms of something that's so tactile um, as clothes and uh, attire. How has your day-to-day job changed in terms of like how you pick the fabrics and how you produce the clothes? Every, yeah, every single piece of my day-to-day job has changed. Like there's not one piece that's the same, um, which is bananas really. Uh, so because I would live in New York, I and my company at the minute is in London. So I'm trying to work UK hours as much as as much as feasible. I don't actually want to start at 4 a.m. So I don't I'm not fully doing it. But I will start calls at about 6.30 a.m. And when I say start calls, I start Zoom calls at 6.30 a.m. Um, I've had to do the old chestnut that my Wi-Fi isn't working. So I don't put my video on for about an hour. Um, but I start then and I start sketch reviews, um, which I'm looking at drawings I'm looking at intricate details. I'm trying to do it all by video cam, which is not great. Um, It's also trying to look at fabrications. And again, so much of fabrication is, yeah, it's what it looks like because that's initially what people are attracted to. But that's the garment that you're looking at. People aren't really looking at a fabric. You're feeling it. It's all about the hand feel and how it drapes and what it looks like. Um, And we're trying to do that right now through Zoom calls. And remember, we don't have any fit models right now because they can't work. So any of the stock with the samples that we're getting, we're having the samples and the fabric sent to our garment technologists who have now taken the mannequins home to their houses. And we're doing these calls where they're in their sitting room with the mannequins, trying to put these screens up close to the garments for us in any way to be able to see what it looks like. So it's very, very different. And that pretty much that goes from fabric review to sample review to fits um, to sketch review color review, print review. And I'd say I'm back to back pretty well, I'm not saying I am. I'm back to back from about 6, 6.30 to about 2.30 p.m. my time. And that's what, that we, we don't stop. And it's not like that all the time, like in a normal environment, you're getting up, you go have your lunch or you might have another meeting, but we're now reacting to, which, you know, touch wood, phenomenal sales on our side. So we're reacting to a business that is now up about 140% whilst 70 stores are closed whoa and trying to do that on top of a global lockdown is bananas so that's what my my day everything's changed my communication with my team i have multiple people on my uh, my direct reports a lot of them have children and a lot of them have really young children actually so that's so taxing on them like i'm having calls with you know one of my the vp of buying reports to me or she's like her child is less than two and, you know, her husband works full time. She doesn't have any help at home at the minute because she can't. So she's trying to be a full time parent whilst a full time employee. And I mean, hats off to anyone being able to do that right now. How is that sustainable? Like, are, are you guys planning ahead to say, OK, well, we can do this maybe conceivably for six weeks or something. But at some point, um, things are going to have to go back into the real world and and how things were actually progressing beforehand, just that normal day to day, um, you know, chain of command without, you know, everybody looking at everyone else's kitchen islands on Zoom. <laughs> yeah, although I'm really quite enjoying that. I get to see where everyone lives, which is kind of great. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, look, it's a hard one because, you know, from a personal level, I don't think society can ever really return to its norm until childcare is looked after. You know, we've been kind of hiding and skirting over this issue for probably a decade, if not longer. Probably my age has only made me realize it for maybe a decade. But, you know, we expect women and men in in some cases, but to be full time employees. 
and have three children at home and manage both and be perfect at both and be happy at doing both. And I think this has put a real, real spotlight on that. So I think personally, I don't think that that's going to, I just don't think society can go back. I don't think the workplace can go back to any degree of normality until childcare is back. I really don't. And I don't know what the answer is for right now. I mean, I'm encouraging all my direct reports to take as much time off as they want if they want to just work one to six. So then maybe from, you know, nine to 12, their husband has their child and then one to six they do. And we just have them all work one to six. I think it's just really important to be really flexible with them because these are people who have got to certain, actually all levels really, but a lot of my direct reports are quite senior. They're all VP level and they've worked really hard to get to those levels. And we just have to show them some compassion and understanding now that this is the norm. It's not their fault, no one's fault. So I think it's just trying to find time and days off and just letting them know that, listen, it's okay if you don't want to meet this meeting because you just cannot do one more meeting because your child's screaming, perfectly fine. You know, we're making leggings, we're fine. (laughs) Well, isn't it lucky they have a sound boss um, who thinks like that because there's such an emphasis on productivity so much of the time and obviously there is with the amount of time you're on Zoom calls. So do you think that what's happening now in the fashion space is going to be a good thing or bad thing for creativity in the industry? Like, do you think it's going to give more create more space for creativity uh, to breathe or do you think it's going to squeeze creativity even more and to be more commercially uh viable instead i think it's a great thing not even just i mean first of all you know the nature of the podcast is what we're talking about so i'm not saying covid is a great thing before anyone starts complaining to you not saying what's happened is a great thing for anyone but for the industry i think something that has rustled their feathers this much is a good thing. We've been talking about this for years. Like when I was in Donna Karen, we had, we so obviously we had our four seasons. We had, you know, spring, summer, autumn, winter, but then you had pre-collections and then you had runway. And then you had, so you had runway in itself is, you know, God, it's stroke inducing. It's so stressful. And then you also had Ramadan. Then you had to do, you had to get CNY at uh, Chinese New Year, also had to go out the door. So when you start adding those on and then you'd have boards or investors that want additional revenue comps and you're like, okay, great. We'll launch swim. Oh, that's not good enough. Okay. Let's do home as well. And remember all of that is a big, huge wheel, but at the very core of this is a creative director. And if you're hoping that this one person whose creativity you're relying on to make a business is going to be creative 24 hours a day, seven days a week with no break and consistently come up to better, with better ideas and better ideas and better ideas. And then buying had to come up with cheaper fabrics and cheaper fabrics and it's just something was always going to break, you know? So I think it was a case of it was breaking and it was fractured for a long period of time, but we were in just such a economy of consumption that no one was really willing to take the risk on their own. I think there's a few, like I think a few sustainable companies and a, a few slow growth companies that took that stance, but you know, they're, they're not really able to scale. They're not really having the selling. Uh, they're not seeing that investment coming through. So I don't think it's a bad thing for the industry. I think it's going to make people slow down. I think it's going to make people realize everyone doesn't have to be in the office. I, you know, I saw this really funny meme actually. Uh, it was about the first week this happened. And I said, I guess we'll really find out what uh, meeting could really be an email after all. And I think that summed it up. It was like, we we're just busy fools a lot at the time. You know, meetings for meeting's sake and then pushing and pushing on designers and creative people to come up with the goods. So I personally am excited to see how this shakes up I mean, I'm excited, obviously nervous and obviously terrified for people and myself and job security and all of that. But I think with the question you asked, I think it's an exciting time. I think we need to realize that 
we don't need to buy this much. We don't need to consume this much. And there needs to be a bit more of a thought process on how we do it and why we're doing it. And the environment, it's not just, you know, it's not just a catchphrase that people are environmentally aware. And it is real. It's actually really damaging the planet. I mean, we're the biggest industry in the world to, to um, that negatively impacts the environment. And that's kind of shit. You know, so no one wants to be a part of that. So again, no one was going to make any real big changes on their own. So I think this has actually forced the entire global retail and fashion industry to come together and fix it. So that's, I think, I think it's kind of exciting. I hate using that word because it's such a horrible time, but I'm glad the change is coming. And do you think the way uh, the stand, the Sandler are the first ones to take the stance and to come off the fashion calendar and to do things at their own pace, do you think that's going to influence other brands and maybe have an impact on the calendars and also the manufacturing process? Again, I think it's the forced nature of this. So I think that a lot of them don't want to do it. They haven't come to terms with it, that they want to do this yet. But there will be, we can't just open Paris for fashion. I mean, there's no, there's not going to be any pre, so pre-collection, the market is actually the first week of June. So no one's doing anything the first week of June. You can't even travel. So they're forced. So they can't take part in that. Then the next big runway shows are September. And there's, I just don't see a world, and I, I don't think any industry really sees a world that everyone's going to be jumping on planes and traveling for something so frivolous as a show. So straight away that they're forced to cancel these, that throws everything up in the air for them. Because these shows and the likes of Saint Laurent, you know, they have got their own stores and their retail stores, but really they rely heavily on the wholesale model. And by that, I mean, you know, close to home. I mean, like Brent Thomas herself, which is their Harrods, et cetera. They go to these stores. That's when they place their orders. That's when they release the POs. When you raise the POs, that's when it goes to the manufacturer. That's when the fabrics are bought. That's when production starts. So that's the whole, you know, the mark calendar that happens. Mm-hmm. As soon as those shows aren't there and buyers aren't doing anything at that stage or as in placing orders at that stage, you know, there's no need for it. So I, I do think more are going to follow. I think a lot are going to follow. But I think right now they've no choice but to follow. And I think at the end of it, when they get through June, they get through September and they realize their world didn't bottom out. You know, it didn't destroy their brand and that, yes, they might be down in sales, but that's because of COVID and people aren't shopping, but they're not down solely because they didn't stick to that calendar. So I think that will open up the cadence for next year for change. So what will what will next year look like then if there's no shows and there's no a wholesale is being done in a different way? What's it going? What's the f- world going to look like in the fashion? Well, right area? now. Yeah, I was like, God, that's such an existential <laughs> question. What will the world look like? Um, so I think. Right. For us, for June and September already, for those markets, you know, anyone I know that works in the industry, we're all looking at virtual showrooms, which, again, that's so weird. But that is what it is. We're looking at virtual showrooms and it's going to be a case of, you know, straight away, actually, another angle of that is, you know, when we open market in New York, I mean, the you can't get a flight, you can't get a hotel room because the world, fashion world, descends on the city four times a year. So it's February, June, uh, September and December. And I mean, descends on it. Huge numbers. Buyers from all over the world come to see the shows and then they come to see all their appointments and do all their buy appointments. That is a massive amount of carbon emissions. Like those flights are huge. Like it's, I mean, literally can't get a flight out. I've tried, trust me. And you can't. And then they fly from there. They will fly on to um, London. And then from there, they will fly to Milan. And then from Milan, they will fly to Paris and then wraps up the show. And that's not taking into the little smaller ones like Miami Swim or Copenhagen's Fashion Week. So I think that's going to be get a lot of positive press. When you're doing virtual showrooms and you've cut down on all those carbon emissions, I think next year to go back to opening them just feels so 
jarring at the minute. I just don't see that happening. I don't think virtual appointments are going to continue either. So I think brands are going to have to get really creative. I'm not sure what the answer is to it yet, but I don't think it's going to go back to the way it was. And honestly, I hope it doesn't, you know, especially having seen the amount of people now who are out of work and who've, you know, people have lost friends or family, especially over here with a million cases in the States. And to, in the, you know, eight, six or 12 months, whatever time it is, to see people jetting around the world again and fully paid for by brands and given tens of thousands of pounds just to post one picture of them at a show kind of feels gross. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that how things are, are just kind of framed differently already with regards to what feels authentic, what feels purposeful, what feel, feels relevant. Um and I think we probably maybe do another uh, podcast on on the shift from kind of the more high end influencer thing and how that's being impacted. But just before you go, um, we were talking to uh, Dak Crystal Clear last week about uh, what he was hearing from his friends in New York. But you're you're there right now. You mm-hmm. live there. Um, what's the vibe on the ground? Uh, is it as as kind of ghost towny as we're hearing? Yeah, it is ghost towny, but it's not as terrifying, I think, as possibly you guys are seeing over there. Because I know my friends and family are always texting, you know, concerned about what we're facing here. It definitely is a massive big deal. I mean, obviously, the numbers can, you know, speak for themselves. But no, I mean, there's a real resilience in New Yorkers, you know, from the amount of shit they've been through from 9-11 and, you know, everything else that the city's had, that they really do get through it all. But I think they're being, especially Manhattan, where I am, I can't really speak to the rest of the country. They're being so respectful of the governor. Governor Cuomo is doing an insane job. Well, I mean, he's not telling us to drink bleach. So that's my level of a good politician. So (laughs) the fact that he's not telling us to do that, he's really guiding us in the right way. He's being respectful. And I think everyone really wants to honor that. And I've never seen... So like the claps every day, every single day at seven o'clock in New York, everyone comes out of their house and claps and screams and plays music and beeps their horn for the healthcare workers. And it's it's kind of magic. I hate to say that, but to see a whole load of people come together, no matter wealth or age or uh, any of their differences. And New York has that real juxtaposition of wealth sometimes. And it just doesn't matter anymore. So that's kind of really nice. I think it's really brought the community together. They're not in it. They're not necessarily a nation that donate a ton of money to charity all the time, compared, especially compared to the Irish. Um, whereas that shifted. A lot of my friends that I would never really think are that charitable, hate to say that, sorry, um, over here, they really are now. They're really becoming more socially aware. They're nothing like the Irish. And I think that we are very socially aware. But over here, they're not. And I think this has definitely turned that on its head. And there's a real sense of we'll get through it. Um, But I do think, I mean, I'd be naive to say that it is not fear. I think, you know, losing your job in New York is very scary. Our rents are an absolute fortune. So there is, you know, and your furloughed over here means you don't get a cent salary and you lose your health care. So there is that absolute terror. But walking out of your house, just going to grab a coffee. Well, you can't do that. But walking out of your house, going to get toilet roll you're good. Like it's safe. Everyone's wearing a mask. It's mandated. Now you actually have to wear them. You're not even allowed in a store if you don't have a mask on. Most people have gloves on. So it's shit, but I think it's not less shit than everywhere else. Mm. Well, thanks so much for that perspective, Gemma. That's totally fascinating. I think people are really going to learn a lot from what you're saying. And we're very grateful for you taking the time out of your 50,000 Zoom meetings a day uh, to (laughs) chat with us. So really appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Stay safe. Una. 
you've got something this week that is about to get in the sea. I love when I get to do get in the sea because, as you know, I'm full of disproportionate, indignant rage. Um, so balanced with our new episode, the Sunday Soothe. only. <laughs> this week's getting in the sea is. Um, surveillance flu capitalism. I was trying to come up with a word for the intersection between like ridiculous capitalist stuff that relates to the pandemic. Um, I suggested pancap to my girlfriend, Sarah, and she was not impressed. So I need to come up with another word. But there is this weird intersection between like pandemic shit, ridiculous capitalism crap, surveillance capitalism and tech. And so this week's Getting in the Sea are... Um, developments that are rooted in monitoring physical distancing. So there was uh, this startup, Landing AI, which is creating a workplace monitoring tool that issues an alert when anyone is less than six feet or two meters away from a colleague. Now, obviously, this is vile. Um, And while we know that physical distancing is important in containing the virus, what I'm really worried about are the developments um, that are going to be made in order to enforce this in ridiculous workplaces, particularly in manufacturing and the tech industry, which don't have any moral compass uh, other than the nonsense that they invent uh, or repackage as invention um, and just, you know, ridiculous productivity. And so I think we should be really, really worried anyway with how tech is informing quote-unquote solutions to the pandemic. Um, One of the things that I'm really concerned about is even, you know, these kind of casually mentioned things about like, oh, mobile phone data shows that like more people are out and about. It's like we should be really concerned that, you know, uh, the data from our mobile phones can actually inform um, governments about where we are and what we're doing. Like that is really, really concerning in the first instance. It is not okay that it's just like a given. But moving beyond that, the much more sinister um, aspects like, you know, AI that monitors um, how far you are from somebody like that does not stop in the workplace. It could end up being a part of a broader surveillance capitalist grossness um, across all of our society. Obviously, what also comes into this, which we'll be looking at in a later episode, are the contract tracing apps that are being developed in different jurisdictions that some of them kind of slot into uh, the types of culture and, um, you know, vaguely kind of surveilly authoritarian type vibes that different countries have, um, how uh, those kind of infringements on civil liberties, on privacy uh, can end up happening in a crisis and then become embedded outside of the crisis. So this week's Getting in the Sea is uh, surveillance flu capitalism. Um, I think it's kind of worrying. I know that certain aspects are necessary, but uh, just this idea of, you know, little fucking... Do you know who um, like? Sorry, I'm just going to stop talking. Basically, getting in the sea is surveillance flu capitalism. Do you know who will really like these, though? Is all those curtain twitchers who are like, why is there nobody in that house? They are outside their two clubs. They're sitting down in a park. Last week's getting to see. We'll love this new development. 
So the yeah, I mean, how, how how effective would tech have been in previous uh, cultures of Irish uh, surveillance and institutionalization uh, to check up on what people were doing and uh, how they should be punished or monitored? Um, so those kind of things really worry me. So basically, that's what's getting in the sea. To go against that and to bring something more positive into our lives, maybe tell us some of your fave bits this week, Una. So my fave bits this week include uh, Normal People, uh, the TV show, which is out. I'm not talking about it. It is so hot right now. V-hot and uh, really, really great, really great. And you can still read my making of piece um, that's on the Irish Times website and was in the magazine this uh, weekend, just gone. It's beautiful and uh, the acting is stunning and well done, everyone. And I just also love seeing Sarah Green in things. I think she's just such a fantastic actor and uh, um, yeah, so it's really, really great. Other uh, fave bits, I'm just loving Joanne McNally's Instagram. She's just being totally gas. And normally people's Instagram stories kind of drive me a bit bats because of, not normally, like a lot of, like, I just don't, some, I like the gas stuff and I like the stuff that's quite self-aware and not the stuff that's very performative um, or just narcissistic. But Joanne's stuff is hilarious. So if you're not already following um, friend of the pod, Joanne McNally on Instagram, an amazing comedian, uh, check her out Very gas bitch she's not just a gas comedian which sometimes comedians aren't gas I just think True. she just has this electricity in her that just makes her a gas trout she has it it not, <laughs> not, not coronavirus <laughs> something else um, and my other fave bit this week is it's my sister Dee's birthday on the 1st of May and I just want to shout out to Dee and say happy birthday and that I love you loads and that I miss you. And I also miss my other sister, Eva, my brother, John. But it's um, it's, it's kind of difficult. It's, it's difficult when you are away from your siblings um, and other family members. And so um, happy birthday, Dee. And I hope you have a great one. What are your fave bits, Andre? Andre. <laughs> Andre, Andre 3000. <laughs> What's going on, Andre? What's um, going on? My five bits this week are, I watched some stuff this week. I never watched stuff. And I was very impressed with what's on offer, I have to say. Or maybe I just chose well this week. Because first up, I watched Self Made on Netflix. This is a wonderful miniseries that is inspired by the life of Madam CJ Walker, um, who was the first self-made uh, black millionaire. Yeah, America's first black self-made female millionaire. Um, it's a really interesting story and um, she is, it's the story of how she conquered the beauty industry for black women in America at a time when women weren't allowed to um, meet with investors or uh, buy factories or all that stuff. So it uh, stars Octavia Spencer and Tiffany Haddish and it is I really enjoyed it and I would um, suggest other people watch it. My other fave bit is another thing I watched. Um, I've, it was my second time watching it. I went to see it in the uh, film festival, but Calm With Horses um, was due its cinematic release this week. And as 
Kunti Corona is here, it couldn't um, go into cinemas, obviously. So it is the first film, I think, to, well, I don't know if it's the first, but it's the first film I've come across to have a digital release. So it's interesting to see how it's rolling out. And um, I watched it on Volta, which is an amazing resource that I've only recently come across that has a lot of independent Irish films. Um, but it is such a great movie. I really, really, really enjoyed it. It's You're on edge for the whole time. It's so brilliantly acted. Uh, your man Cosmo is an absolute ride. And I would suggest, I would watch it again. It's just, I was born crying again. I'm going to watch it this week. I think Vault is a great one. And if you can um, pay uh, to buy or pay to rent um, independent Irish cinema, that's what you should be doing right now. Step away from Netflix and get on to Blinders back catalogue on Vimeo or get on to Volta and support uh, Indigenous Irish cinema. And um, if you can... Think about the money you would spend going to the cinema to see these films, and obviously they need to do well at the box office after to the journey to see a film having gone through all this journey not to be able to get the cinematic release is so heartbreaking. So if you can pay for the box office, that would be great. And like, don't you know when you go to the cinema and you're like, oh, can I just get a popcorn? And they're like, do you want a large? It's better value. You're like, oh, perfect. I spent 200 euro getting uh, some sweets and a Coke. Thanks a million. So if you have to, you would have spent 200 euro going to the cinema. So spend 4.99 and renting a film. Um, and then finally, um, in my fave bits is the Dear Abbey, or the Dear, Dear Abbey, the Dear Ireland project from the Abbey, um, which has asked 50 writers to write um, monologues that 50 actors are performing. Um, it's over three nights, so it started last night. Last night's still, they're live for 24 hours, so you can watch last night still if we release this right now, which we probably won't. So uh, you can watch Thursdays and Fridays, um, but there's some amazing uh, actors, writers, um, artwork. It's just a, it's a, a really, really great production. Um, it's really well done. And it's really soul enhancing, um, which is something that we all need right now. Speaking of good productions, uh, when we're talking about things to do or support this week, um, I think the Other Voices Courage broadcast that they're doing is really fantastic. So obviously there's loads of um, artists playing live music in their bedrooms and having doing these like at home gigs. And that's totally grand. But I think a little bit of lethargy is creeped in for me with regards to how these um first of all these things aren't really gigs right it's somebody playing music in their office or in their bedroom or in their living room or something um and there's kind of like a sameness to it and I've been kind of wondering what new form is there actually because that's not a gig a gig is when you convene in a venue with loads of different people and listen to music live and there's energy in the room and all that kind of stuff However, other voices are doing this courage broadcast, which is on their YouTube and stuff, and also on the RT player now, where it's an artist or two um, physically distanced performing in Whelan's, and the venue is empty, but they're filming it. And it just adds a different kind of production value to it. And it's really great to see loads of really brilliant Irish artists. Um, managing to play live music. Uh, so if you're kind of sick of people's, you know, um, audio breaking down or you just can't watch something else um, that isn't really a gig and leaves you kind of feeling a bit bereft, check this out. Um, already this week, Circa Richardson and Creevino Raleigh performed and it's great. What else can we do this week, Andrea? 
Speaking of Andre, Andre, that Lee was bereft. Um, I watched Queens. It wasn't. It was Victoria and uh, Davina's Thursday Thursday last week, and it was. It's just I tried to disconnect from what things I was missing and turn off against them. And then I watched that last week, and it brought me so much joy that I was like, "What am I thinking, you idiot? Get back onto it!" So this week's Queen of Captivity is round three. So they're doing heat so that when. Eventually, the world opens up again and we can go to places together. They will have a finalist from Queen of Captivity. But it's been so fascinating to watch Davina and Victoria's sets get better and better each week as they add. Victoria's added a smoke machine this week. They're flashing lights. It's a full-on drag set now. It's absolutely gas to watch the development of how we're all adapting. It's a tenner a ticket. Um, so support the drag queens and go to dragdup.net to get tickets for that on Thursday evenings. You have to buy tickets before 6pm on a Thursday, by the way. That's when box office close. Um, and then finally, uh, just a little reminder that Murder Capital are doing the tweet along um, with, oh God, what's it, what, who? Tim Burgess. It's Tim, Tim yeah. Um, so that is on this Sunday. So do tune in. So we know the deal by now, guys. Keep your distance. Keep washing your hands. Uh, keep your sneezes and coughs contained. Keep yourself at home. Keep a mask on outside. And keep being a non-sap and giving out about people on Twitter. Keep it to yourself and shut up. Yeah, we need to add keep it to yourself to that list. Yeah. I would also like to say before you go into the tuna chicken roll, thank you so much to everybody who um, has come on board as a new patron and also to everybody just tweeting us or talking about the podcast online. We see it all. We appreciate all of your messages um, and we're really, really grateful. So thank you very much for listening and for spreading the word and for responding to what we're doing. Uh, oh, I, I second that. <laughs> Uh, this week's tuna chicken roll is now as we've been in captivity not captivity that's the wrong word as we've been in quarantine uh, the rise of the BBC theme tune as um, a tuna in itself has been evident and people have been using um, using videos to pretend they're DJs and all that kind of jazz but a very enterprising DJ called Ben Howell has remixed the BBC theme tune with Dua Lipa and the results are nothing short of stunning. Enjoy. I've been Una. I've been Andrea. That was Corona, but make it fashion. And we are United, United Ireland. <laughs> Yay. Uh, stay tuned for a bonus podcast this week. Not stay tuned. Just stay, you know, checking your apps or whatever. Or just watch our Twitter and social media. Another bonus pod coming your way. And of course, our Sunday Soothe will drop uh, Patreon only on Sunday. We are flat out.
is the BBC Home Service. Over to the news. Kill me slowly with your kiss Wrap me around your fingertips Down 